This is an ABC podcast. Please be advised that the program today will be discussing voluntary assisted dying and abortion. If you think you might be offended or have children with you, please turn off and join us again in an hour. If these issues cause you any concerns and you need to talk to someone, call Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue 1300 22 46 36, or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. G'day, Josh Steps here. Imagine you're out in a public space in a shopping centre or a restaurant and a man comes up to you, a stranger, and he says, uh, excuse me, I, I don't want to be rude, but have you been diagnosed with any condition? And you say, no, what sort of condition? He says, I don't know, like a, a brain disease or something? And you say, well, that's quite the conversation starter. No, thank you. I have not been diagnosed with a brain disease, but thanks anyway. Have a good one. And the man says, no, 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 it's just... I'm a surgeon, and the way you walk, it's quite distinctive. And you say, what's wrong with how I walk? And he says, nothing, nothing. But that that particular gait, it's often associated with early-onset Parkinson's. You should see a doctor. And with that, your life changes forever. That's what happened to Billy Connolly, the comedian. He was stopped by a Tasmanian surgeon as he walked across a Los Angeles hotel lobby, unaware of the incurable condition that was getting its claws into his brain. That could happen to you, it could happen to me, and if it does, all we can hope for is that it happens when we're old enough to die of something else before we can't walk properly, can't dress ourselves, can't clean a teacup, can't remember whether you've even had tea until you see the dirty cup you can't clean. As you grapple with that sort of life sentence, should one of the options on the table be, eventually, when it's really bad, to get a doctor to legally kill you? Yes, says a West Australian cross-party committee recently, paving the way for a firestorm of ethical debates in WA that could see the state legalise physician-assisted suicide next year. Would that be an act of grace or a callous disregard for human life? Are some questions best left to the universe, to fate, to God? Meanwhile, New South Wales looks set to legalise abortion, another flashpoint that raises questions about when a human life is worth sustaining. And don't get us started on the right to life of non-human animals. Although, of course, we will get started on that because this is the People Versus, where we prance gaily through the thorniest moral thickets. Like, if a pig is more self-aware than a brain-damaged human who's in a coma from which they'll never recover, why is it okay to slaughter the sentient pig but not the non-sentient human? Recite your Ten Commandments, grab a copy of your advanced care directive and pour a stiff drink. It's time for The People versus Death. I'm Josh Steps with a little bit of a cold today, unfortunately. Welcome to The People versus. This is the show where you, the people, wrestle with the ethics of one big timely issue... This week, it's the people versus death, inspired by the West Australian push for doctor-assisted suicide. My guests today, our brains trusts to help us think through the ethics of the issues, are Peter Singer, one of the world's most influential moral philosophers, the man who literally wrote the book that coined the term animal liberation. He's an Aussie, but works on bioethics at Princeton University, from where he joins us today with some beautiful uh, crickets in the background through the balmy summer open window. Peter, I like the sound of them. Yes, it's very relaxing. (laughs) Our other brain's trust is Margot Somerville, a professor of bioethics, but from a Catholic perspective at the University of Notre Dame, Australia's School of Medicine. She's with me in the Sydney studio. G'day, Margot. Hi, George. Uh, Just tell us about the bill that has passed uh, West Australia's lower house, but it's likely to face fierce opposition in the upper house. What would the law do? Well, it would authorise assisted suicide and, in some cases, euthanasia. And there already is legislation in Victoria, which is called the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act, and some other countries have also moved in this direction. I lived in Canada for a very long time and worked in bioethics, and Canada has a federal act where it calls it medical assistance in dying, and that act is now being implemented and is still subject to a lot of conflict and controversy. What do you make of the Victorian law that passed two years ago? I disagree with euthanasia and assisted suicide. 
So consequently, I don't think that was a good move. What, what, what's your opposition? Well, there's two ways that you can look at this. You can think that one human being killing another human being is inherently wrong. I actually believe that, but not everybody does. So then you have to look, well, if we do this, what are the consequences of legalising this? Who might be put at risk? And certainly vulnerable people, fragile elderly people, people with disabilities, we know that they're put at risk by this type of legislation. Also, once it comes into force, even though originally it usually has fairly strict restrictions, those gradually get dropped either in practice or even by changing the law. Just this morning, I got an email from uh, Canada, from Quebec, and uh, there's been a challenge to the Canadian Act because it, in order to get euthanasia under it, you, your death has to be reasonably foreseeable. And a Quebec court yesterday held that that requirement of reasonable foreseeability of death is unconstitutional. You shouldn't have to be re- have death reasonably foreseeable. Now, I haven't seen the judgment. Apparently, it's a very long judgment. But uh, the email that I got said they would hope that this would be appealed and probably go to the Supreme Court of Canada. But then the Supreme Court of Canada 9-0 approved of legalising euthanasia, which was the reason that it it was legalised in the country. So uh, am I correct in in surmising from that that as much as anything, your opposition to legalising physician-assisted suicide is a slippery slope one, that essentially you're opening the door to the state condoning suicide and murder. Yeah, my own personal objection is that I don't think we should have one, and especially not have doctors giving lethal injections to people. But even if you don't believe that, my objections are the consequences of doing this. And it's not just the consequences in terms of people being wrongly put to death, but it's also the consequences in terms of our shared values. It says that death is a, is a reasonable response for relief of suffering. It approves of suicide. And we know that, for example, in Australia, the number one killer of people under the age of 35, it's suicide. And surely we don't want a societal message that says that's a good idea. You're a bioethicist and yet you're reflecting a lot of the concerns that a, a prominent psychiatrist has raised about physician-assisted suicide in Australia. Dr Kim Boone works at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital and she was explaining to the ABC's Scott Stevens who the vulnerable groups are. Just to take a listen to her opinion and we'll get Peter Singer's thoughts. Well, I suppose being a psychiatrist, it's, it's people with mental illness, depression, delirium, psychotic illnesses, a whole range of psychiatric illnesses make contribute to a vulnerability to wishing to terminate their life uh, prematurely or feeling persuaded uh, to accept uh, voluntary assisted dying. The elderly, children, impoverished, poorly educated, disadvantaged, socially disadvantaged, isolated, lonely, they're all, they all have vulnerabilities that uh, could potentially contribute to a request for, for voluntary assisted dying or, or to accept a, a death and not cost the community. Uh-huh. This is almost the social equivalent of I don't want to be a burden to my loved ones. Yeah. Can, can I just ask, though, Kim, specifically in your role as a psychiatrist, I mean, there is a great deal, and I know the organization that I work for puts a great deal of editorial consideration into any coverage of any stories surrounding suicide. And there is a lot of prominence given to suicide prevention. Are you, do you worry about... Yes. Okay. I'm not even going to finish the question. Could you just speak to that? So we worry that, I guess, legalising physician-assisted suicide can normalise suicide and can make it more acceptable and increase the risk of people engaging in suicidal behaviour, suicidal acts, and it becomes a normal and accepted way of uh, managing insurmountable, apparent insurmountable problems. That's my colleague Scott Stevens speaking with Dr Kim Boone, a psychiatrist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. This is The People Versus with me, Josh Zepps. This uh, week we are tackling euthanasia, abortion, all the easy-to-resolve issues in The People Versus Death. One of our brains trusts is Peter Singer, bioethicist at Princeton University. Peter, what do you make of this argument against physician-assisted suicide, that it normalises suicide? 
Well, it's very interesting that the people who are worried about this, both Margot Somerville and Kim Boone, who we just heard from, are the ones who are insisting on, on calling this medically assisted suicide. The Victorian legislation is not called that. It's called voluntary assisted dying. And that is generally true of uh, most of these, the legislation like this around the world. Uh, for example, in California or uh, state of Washington or Oregon, many other states in the United States where this is legal, it's usually called something like medically assisted dying. And, and certainly the movement that is trying to encourage other states to adopt similar legislation does not use the word suicide. They don't think that that would be politically helpful for them. So, But the yeah, semantics you're, aren't going to be the, the salient point there, are they, Peter? The, the, the semantics aren't going to be the salient point. The salient point is going to be whether or not it's regarded as culturally, culturally kosher to end one's life. I think the semantics are relevant because it's a very different thing to end your life when you're already terminally ill, um, or even if, as in, say, the Quebec court, as Margot said, as apparently mentioned, even if you're not uh, terminally ill, but you are incurably ill and uh, you find your condition intolerable, that's a very different thing from somebody who is perhaps only temporarily depressed or uh, those are you know, the kinds of cases we should be working to prevent. And I don't see why medical assistance in dying is going to influence that at all. One follow-up, Margot, and then I'll, I'll take this to the people. Yeah, well, if you look at what's happened in the Netherlands, they've, got, they've now allowed euthanasia for people who've got only mental illness, and they've got a special clinic called the End of Life Choices Clinic that provides that. And uh, the doctor who was a psychiatrist who originally carried out euthanasia when it was still illegal in order to get it approved for people with mental illness, a Dr Chabot, has recently written a lead editorial in the Dutch newspaper saying that if, if he had known what was going to happen and how this would be used, he would not have done what he did. And I think that Dr. Mark Conrad, who's a psychiatrist in the United States, he's got a really interesting saying. It's that the job of psychiatrists is to prevent suicide, not to provide it. Since you raised the Netherlands, I, I was going to get to this later, but I'll just squeeze it in before we, uh, we bring our people in. Last January, a medical ethicist in the Netherlands, Berner van Barsen, resigned from one of the review boards in protest at dementia sufferers being euthanized on the basis of written directives that they wrote before they lost their faculties that were then enforced after they lost their faculties. And she wrote in the newspaper, I don't know if this is the same person you're talking about, Margot, uh, quote, it's fundamentally impossible to establish that the patient is suffering unbearably because he can no longer explain it. And now in the Netherlands, there's the country's first euthanasia malpractice case, which involves a dementia sufferer who had asked to be killed when the time was right. But when her doctor judged the time to be right, she resisted, but the doctor proceeded anyway and said, well, I was just obeying her opinion when she was of sound mind and now she was not of sound mind. So I was obeying her when I should have listened to her, even though she resisted in the moment. Peter, how do we work around these questions of mental cogency? Well, there are some genuinely difficult questions here, and I think they should be raised and discussed, and it's reasonable to have different views. I, I know, you know my mother suffered from dementia for some years, she was a subscribing member to what was then called the Voluntary Euthanasia Society of Victoria. And I believe that she would have wanted to die earlier than she did in fact die. Um, and that you know, she, at that time she couldn't be helped to die. In fact, she still couldn't be helped to die under Victoria's present legislation. But, but there is a real question, you know, that if somebody who knows that their faculties are going, might be led to end their life while their quality of life is still reasonably good. There have certainly been some examples of this. People who, for example, have been able to write a coherent explanation of why they're ending their life now. And that's because they don't want to go on living when they are simply you know, lying there in bed and having to be looked after, clean, changed, and mm. so on. So they prefer that. So I think it's, a, it's reasonable to have this debate, but I don't see it as a slippery slope if we have a debate about difficult ethical issues and, you know, then after that debate, 
we may decide through legislation or through a referendum or whatever it might be to go in, in one direction or the other. If that referendum or that debate ends up leading to a scenario in which mental illnesses are included in reasons for voluntary assisted dying such that you can uh, you can sort of write a, a legally binding document saying that if I can no longer get out of bed or recognise uh, my loved ones, then I want you to put me down, then is that enough of a safeguard in your opinion? I think just writing that once is probably not enough, but if you write it um, before witnesses on, you know, more than one occasion with, so let's say, some weeks between those occasions to say that this is my settled opinion, I think it would be reasonable to, to carry out that view, yes. I think, you know, people, when they're in a position to make that judgment, that's that's the time when they should be listening. Margot, I can see you chomping at the bit to jump back in, but I really <laughs> want to get to the people because this is the people versus... <laughs> And our people this week wrestling with the thorny issue of death, the people versus death, with me, Josh Sepsa, Jonathan in Ballarat, Karen in Perth and Mara in Sydney. Jonathan, just tell us a little about yourself, uh, where you're from and what your general thoughts about what you've heard so far are. Uh, look, I, I live in, in the country near Ballarat, but I've lived also in cities and so on during my working life. I was trained as a social worker. I'm retired these days, but still take a very, very strong interest in uh, human affairs and uh, subjects like this. In terms of what I guess I could say at this moment, I don't have a problem where someone is in hospital, terminally ill and facing uh, an imminent and painful death and is compass, they have their wits about them, they've talked it through with family and the doctors and I think that sort of case I can see it would be a blessing for that person, for all involved, to permit assisted dying. But that's where the clarity stops for me. And I agree very, very much with Margaret's view that a more general permission for assisted dying raises a whole lot of questions and puts a lot of people who are vulnerable at risk. Just to clarify, when you say that you agree with Margot's view, you agree with her view that people with mental illnesses shouldn't be able to, to avail themselves of this? No, you... I wouldn't dictate about who should or shouldn't be able to avail themselves what I'm saying is as a society, we would have under those conditions where voluntary assisted dying is available, we would have a slippery slope, I believe, and it does put a lot of people at risk. But so are you but opposed, opposed to legalising it? Not necessarily. I think society is going to have to go through this. It fits with a whole range of liberalisations on rules which were once quite watertight, becoming no longer watertight. And I think we're simply going to have to go through it and struggle with it. I think the solution lies, if there's a solution, if I can call it that, in uh, some very deeper and much deeper issues being addressed in society around the issues of individualism and uh, the isolation of vulnerable and so on. Right. Now you're getting to the profound stuff. And Margot wants to jump in. Yes, very quickly, Margot, because I want to get about that You mentioned facing a very painful death. Nobody should have to face a very painful death. And we don't need euthanasia to address people do, Margot. But that's wrong. I I believe it should be a criminal offence to leave somebody in serious pain. But there are conditions that are excruciating regardless. What you can do, you use palliative sedation. The person's not conscious of the pain. Is that Karen? Yes, Karen here. Jump in. Could I just make a quick comment here? My husband died about six years ago and he had the most excellent palliative care and he was in, which took the edge off his pain, but he was in more pain than I've ever known anybody to be in. And he was also hallucinating because of toxins going into his liver or something like that. So death can be very painful even with the best of palliative care. And Karen, as I understand it, you, your father chose to avoid that fate by actually going to Switzerland and availing himself of voluntary assisted dying, is uh, that right? Yes. My father, David Goodall, he died about a year ago. He was 104. He chose to go to Switzerland for assisted dying because uh, his body was falling apart. So basically, he couldn't see. Uh, he was probably legally blind. He couldn't smell he couldn't taste he'd pretty well been ordered by his doctor he'd had a fall and the doctor ordered him not to cross the road anymore not to take the bus because he was very 
very active going to the university, still working every day. Um, but that confined him to his unit, so he was still living independently. Basically, he decided to go to Switzerland because, well, he'd been a member of uh, Exit International and Dying with Dignity for about 25 years, but he decided to go to Switzerland because he was concerned that if he had another fall, he would be sent off to a nursing home. There wasn't any quality of, of life for him anymore. So he went to Switzerland and there were so many checks and balances to ensure that someone who is, for example, vulnerable would not die with their system. So, you know, he had to write out something to say why he wanted to follow through with voluntary assisted dying when he got over to Switzerland two or three days before he had the lethal injection. He was seen by a psychiatrist there to ensure that he was mentally sound. Yes, it, it was not done frivolously or yeah. easily. Um, that, thanks, Karen. We'll check in with uh, you and Jonathan throughout the rest of the show to see if your opinions shift at all as you listen to Peter Singer and Margot Somerville. Our third person uh, today on The People Versus is Mara in, in Sydney. Mara, just tell us a little about yourself and what you make of the conversation so far. So I currently live in Sydney. I work as a social worker, so I've actually worked in a few different areas of human services. I can understand both sides. Just from personal experience with people that I know that do suffer quite chronic uh, mental illness, and uh, one of the areas that I actually worked in was disability, and that was a in sort of a high needs group home with um, adults that were deaf and blind, and then actually also suffered mental illness. And so we ha- we did have a resident there that was very debilitating for her, so she was bed bound and. Um, couldn't move. The only thing that she could move was her head. She couldn't eat. She actually was pig-fed. The quality of life for her wasn't very good, and we had some new staff come in, and they really struggled working with her. And a few comments were made, you know, along the lines of, um, you know, her quality of life isn't good at all, and you know, she she'd be better off to die. Do you think she wanted to? Well, look, she couldn't communicate that, and. Just from her history, she had actually survived multiple strokes that came her way and she was still there and she's actually still here today. I just sort of thought, well, she's still here and she hasn't gone and she survived. So, you know, if she's here for a reason, you know, who are we to actually take that from her? When you say she's here for a reason, are you religious? Uh, look, I'm not, but I, I can understand certain aspects of spirituality and how it um, can apply. So you mean today. some sort of some sort of secular version of fate in terms of like she's here... The universe yeah. has, has led to her being here. And that's yeah, it. absolutely. Um, Mara, thanks Thanks for being one of our people on The People Versus. We'll check in with you and Karen and Jonathan throughout the show and see if your no opinions worries. shift and change. This is yep. The People Versus with me, Josh Zepps, on, on RN and uh, online and, of course, on the ABC Listen app, and you can get the show as a podcast as well through any podcast app. Um, Peter Singer, how important is consent here? Because we're just hearing from Mara about somebody who may have had an abysmal quality of life and no desire to go on living but was not capable of consenting in any way. Is consent morally crucial? For somebody who is capable of expressing consent, or refusing consent for that matter, then I think consent is absolutely crucial. I think that if somebody you know, can make it clear that they want to go on living for anybody to deliberately end their life is, is simply murder. And um, I don't think that that is anything that's envisaged in any of the legislation that uh, we've been talking about. But the more difficult question, I suppose, is people who are not capable of consent, and that might be people that we've been talking about, like somebody with dementia who did not express a view beforehand, um, or perhaps somebody who has been intellectually disabled from birth or for a very long time and is not able to even contemplate that issue of continuing to live or not. So in some of those cases, maybe... You know, consent can't apply, and it's. I think it's a much tougher ethical issue than where people are saying, I want to die, please help me. Mm. But I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there are some circumstances where some conditions are so distressing uh, that where somebody is not capable of consent, one could nevertheless be justified in, in ending that human being's life. 
Margot Somerville, the possibility of um, essentially adjudicating that a person's life is is not worth living because it's too full of suffering and pain, but even if they're incapable of articulating that they want to go, is that ever morally permissible? Even people who agree with euthanasia usually don't go as far as Peter's just gone. That They say, no, it's not. A lot not. of people don't go as far as Peter goes in a whole <laughs> well, lot of ethical true. areas. I've, I've learned that over the years. Uh, but Can I ask Margot a question on please, that? Please, please. Uh, so, Margot, earlier you mentioned as an alternative to euthanasia to relieve pain in people who are suffering severe pain, you mentioned palliative sedation. Yeah. Now, you didn't really explain that, but what you mean is basically making somebody who is in pain unconscious so that they're not suffering any pain, right? Yeah. Um, and generally when my understanding of that is that you also don't feed the person. So you don't put in a tube so that they're nourished artificially. And of course, because they're unconscious, they're not going to swallow. So the end result of that is you're making them unconscious until they die and they're going to die because they're not getting any food or fluids. Now, if you accept that, and if you would do that for a patient who was in pain but incapable of consenting, really, how is that ethically different from what I'm suggesting, giving them a lethal injection. Well, they die a little bit earlier, but they don't have any conscious states. Well, because, Peter, when if you use palliative sedation correctly, it's true. It can be used as what I would call terminal sedation, in which case it's no different from euthanasia because the person doing it has got an intention to inflict death on the person. But that's not what I see palliative sedation as doing. So I think it would be wrong not to continue nutrition and hydration if that was indicated as being appropriate. It would also be wrong to make the sedation so deep that the person didn't ever wake up in palliative sedation, the person providing that has an intention to relieve the pain and suffering and uses appropriate medication, not medication that's meant to terminate life. And I think you have to look at the individual cases, but there is a great deal of difference between keeping someone out of pain and allowing them to die a natural death, which is what I think palliative sedation is, and using palliative sedation as an alternative means of euthanasia. Just on the on the actual ethical question, I just want to tease out the direction that Peter Singer was just pointing us in. So in terms of palliative care, you're saying that if you give someone sedation such that they're almost but not quite unconscious, they're very foggy and very groggy, and they slip off into death that way, then that is vastly morally different from giving them enough to knock them out. Josh. And that then they slip away that way. What, what? Yeah, well, let me give you an example. I used to teach criminal law. Now, if you've got somebody who drives down the street and some and a child runs out in front of the car and that person hits a child and kills it, they had no intention to kill that child. And so although they've caused the death of the child, then that is not murder. If you have the same thing happen where the person deliberately runs into that child and kills the child, then that's first-degree murder. So intention matters. And so what you have to do here is when you look at what the doctor's doing with palliative sedation, you can make a reasonable judgment as to to what that doctor's intention was. Was it simply to relieve the pain and suffering and was what was used to do that appropriate as compared with was their intention to end life? What if, is there a moral distinction between an act of omission and an act of commission here? Does it, does it matter if you have to do something in order for the person to die or if the merely not doing of something, like inserting a feeding tube, will lead uh, to their death? I think that there's a moral difference between inflicting death, being the killer of the person, and allowing the person to die a natural death. Peter Singh, you're famously consequentialist, so I'm assuming that you will, will you will dispute the claim that there's a difference between doing something or not doing something if the outcome ends up being uh, the same. I, I will dispute that, yes. I'm, I'm also wondering what exactly Margot means by dying a natural death when you're in a hospital or an intensive care unit because, uh, you know, really very few people die natural deaths now. They're mostly under some sort of hospital care. And I think, you know, then you make decisions about 
whether you want to prolong someone's life, whether you don't. I think we're responsible for the decisions we make and, the, as you say, the consequences that we bring about, whether those consequences come about because of an act or because of our deliberately refraining. I think there's a difference between allowing to die, as we used to put it, allowing nature to take its course. The argument in the euthanasia debate is not if we die, we're all going to die. The argument in the euthanasia debate is how we die and whether some means of dying are morally or ethically acceptable and others aren't. And where you and I disagree is that you see euthanasia as being morally acceptable and I see it as morally unacceptable. On ABC RN, on air and online, this is The People Versus with me, Josh Zepps. This week, the people are wrestling with the ethics of death. What does it mean for a life to be worth living? West Australia may legalise voluntary assisted dying as soon as next year. So we're hearing from the people. Let's check in with them. Our people this week wrestling through the ethics of the issue are Jonathan in Ballarat, Karen in Perth, and Mara in Sydney. Karen, what do you reckon? Well, um, I would like to bring up the idea of um, ethics for doctors. I think a lot of doctors doing palliative care, occasionally they will increase the morphine until event and unconsciousness until the person passes away. I think it's far more ethical if someone has made a choice that they have a terminal illness and uh, or they're in so much pain and they don't want to survive um, for to to request assisted dying. I think that's far more ethical for the doctors. Mm. Right, than, so co- codify it rather than having it done on the sly. Yeah, well, bring it out exactly. in the open. Really, yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think if you can talk about it more openly, um, in a way, you get a better discussion and people know what what's going on. If doctors withdraw treatment without necessarily discussing it with the patient, then that's a non-consenting situation, which I think we shouldn't have. Mara in Sydney is one of our other people. Mara, Margot was talking about a natural death, that you should have a natural death, and Peter Singer disputed what that even means in the modern world. Do you think there's a, a, a virtue or a morality in having a natural death? Look, I think there is you know, a big difference between someone who does have a chronic health condition that is going to die and quite in a a terrible way. You know, I do actually agree with them being able to make the choice to end their life. I I can see both sides of the argument, but actually I I do have a question for Margot, if that's okay. Please. I've been listening to you and and, and I can understand certain parts of what you've said and I do agree with you, but I'm just curious, hypothetical of course, say if you were suffering a chronic health condition, so whether it be cancer or, you know, severe dementia, you were in severe pain to the point of it being, you know, unbearable or your mind was going and you couldn't actually, you know, remember your loved ones. What is it that you would choose to do? Would you choose to endure that suffering and the pain to have, the, you know, to have a natural death or would you like to have the choice to actually end your life? I can understand how individual people would like to have that choice. But I think we've got to think more broadly than that. What does it mean for society? What does it mean for future generations? I mean, putting it in very strong terms, legalised killing by doctors. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And so... So there, there we have to look to, I think, you know, what, what do we owe to the common good? What do we owe yeah. to future generations? And just to come back to the pain thing, I'm yeah. an absolute fanatic about people must not be left in pain mm. and adequate pain relief, pain management is not euthanasia. But, Margot, there are yeah. all kinds of horrible ways to, to die. I mean, there are terrible degenerative diseases that, um, yeah. you know, and pain isn't the only metric by which life becomes miserable. There are all kinds of other degenerative yeah. ways, not being able to walk, not being able to think, not being able to mm. remember that people might not want. So I think it's a, a little bit disingenuous to, to keep banging on about how pain can be relieved. But, Josh, I also think we have to ask, do you think it's new that that happens to people? 
It isn't. That's that's true of the human race ever since we've been around. So why? Well, we're living on it why, longer, why should so. we accept that? I mean, it's true of the human race ever since we've been around that lots of people have starved to death because they couldn't get enough to eat. We we don't accept that. We we want to change the situation in which the human race has existed since it evolved from non-human animals. So, you know, why can't we change this as well? Well, you can change it, but you've got to look at the consequences of doing so. And not just right. the and consequences. I'm not, I'm not really convinced individual. by your claim that all of these terrible things are happening, you know, because we've we've had legalized voluntary euthanasia or assisted in dying in some countries now for for forty years. You know, the Netherlands is an example, and it's not as if that country has fallen apart. Um, it's not, you know, the dire things that were predicted when it first started having uh, open voluntary euthanasia but, really haven't happened. Pe- well, people said then it would be like the Nazis would come back, you know, and they would start getting rid of undesirable races or Something of that sort, but, no, you know, that hasn't happened, fortunately. Peter, but in the Netherlands currently, they're looking at whether if you're over 70 and tired of life, you should be able to have euthanasia, that you don't have to have any other reason. I mean, as one person put it, if, you, if you're if you terminally bored, should you be able to have euthanasia? To clarify, that's no, not that, the law. That doesn't that threaten anyone that. else, right? That's, that's your eh? choice. You say, okay, I'm over mm. 70 and I'm terminally bored. I think it's really unfortunate that people should be in that situation. Being you know over seventy myself and finding lots to do and excite me about the world, but still um, you know in a way that that's not that's not the kind of slippery slope that people were talking about thirty or forty years ago um, because you know it, as I say it doesn't threaten anybody who doesn't elect that choice. I think that there needs to be a lot of checks and balances to ensure that there isn't a slippery slope. But I also just want to comment on on. Um, Margot talking about the doctors taking the action to kill the patient. Um, Voluntary assisted dying may not be that way. It may be that the person has to uh, administer a lethal dose themselves, but it's it's enabled by the doctor, and that's I mean that is how my father died. Um, You know, he had to administer his uh, own um, uh, lethal dose. So. You know, it's not necessarily the doctors who are choosing to kill their patients or to euthanise their patients. Jonathan, you've been—you're uh, one of our people here on the People Versus. You've been listening patiently. What do you make of it? Personally, they have an issue. Uh, I don't see as problematic assisted dying in cases where there where all the boxes are ticked and there are all the all the appropriate safeguards. However, when I think about this issue, I ask myself. Why, at this point in history, are we so concerned with this question of assisted dying? And at the very same time, we have a huge increase in the level of suicide. In other words, self-administered death outside any sort of institution. And I would go to the conditions which people are being asked to live in. For instance, if you go to an old people's home, they're, they're walking dead, so many of them. Old people, once they retire or are made or are retrenched, often find their lives become impoverished, they become isolated, they become lonely and increasingly vulnerable psychologically, such that they will think about the end of their days. I think the level of vulnerability that is in our society due to relational poverty is huge and that feeds into this question of suicide and assisted dying. That's extraordinarily important, and I totally agree with you, Johnson. In the Netherlands, they looked at people who had euthanasia who were mentally ill but not physically ill, and 52% of the ones in that category cited loneliness as a major reason for wanting euthanasia. I mean, that's absolutely tragic. On, on this one, I think you know we're all in agreement. I certainly agree with what Jonathan said and with what Margot said. I don't think we're putting enough resources into trying to help people in this situation. Um, I noticed that uh, Britain, I think, has appointed a, a minister for loneliness, um, which means they're really giving it some serious thought, uh, and I agree with that. I also think there's good evidence that investing more in uh, mental health treatment and support for people with mental health issues is not only very effective in improving their quality of life, but actually pays off um, because 
mental illness is such a major cause of uh, unemployment, lost productivity. Uh, so it's really a, a win-win situation for societies yeah. like Australia to spend more on on mental health care. Mm, I've got a, I've got a couple of uh, of two year old uh, toddler twins, and uh, we're just start entering them in daycare. And someone at daycare said to me, "Isn't it funny that uh, we put our parents into old people's homes and pay for that, and then we put our kids into daycare and we pay for that? Whereas in the olden days, you just gave the kids to the grandparents. You didn't have to pay for either of them. <laughs> the grandparents were re- were reinvigorated by the kids, and the kids yeah. got taught by the grandparents. Margo. Yeah, as well, uh, Jonathan, you uh, brought up, you know, that the people have got nowhere to go, no sort of social or relational connection. Surprisingly, when you look at the statistics on the reasons of why people want euthanasia, uh, feeling a burden on others is number three on the list of reasons, and pain is actually around about number 14. So we keep talking about needing this because of pain, but a lot of people are turning to euthanasia because of the sorts of things that you've just described. Peter Singer, the, the first book of yours that I read when I was in school was Rethinking Life and Death, in which you talk about a lot of these these issues. And, and you write, all human life is not of equal worth. Treat beings in accordance to the ethical situation at hand. What if the ethical situation at hand is something like what we're talking about, where there's an old woman who's lonely, Maybe she's a bit diseased. Maybe she's costing her family a lot of money and hassle. If the utilitarian benefit to all of her kids, for whom she's a bit of a pain in the bum, is greater than the benefit that grandma gets from existing, isn't it problematic to think about them encouraging her to knock herself off? It's problematic to think of them encouraging her to do that. Yes, I, I agree. I think clearly that, you know, this is a situation in which there are, there are better options. And trying to give her more interest in life, um, perhaps by giving her more role in looking after the grandchildren, or can, can be a better option. We should try to avoid these situations. It might be that in some of them, there is no way of avoiding them and there is no better quality of life for the uh, elderly person. And as I say, you know, if that in the end is their choice, then I'd accept that that's their choice and they should be able to act on it. But... Um, but I do think that we could do more as a society to avoid many people being in that kind of situation. Let's just shift to the other end of, of life. We're talking a lot about how we end lives at the end of our lifespan. But what about abortion? It's about to cease being a criminal offence in New South Wales after a, a bill to decriminalise abortion uh, will be debated in the upper house uh, this month. There's been lots of opposition, lots of impassioned debate inside Parliament. Uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, warned that this bill could lead to terminations one day before birth. Uh, supporters of decriminalisation say that abortions after 20 weeks are rare and usually undertaken for fetal abnormalities. The New South Wales Liberal MLA, Tanya Davies, is opposed to the bill legalising abortion. She's the former Minister for Women and Mental Health. She spoke to ABC News Radio's Glenn Bartholomew just before the bill was debated in the lower house. Take a listen to what Tanya had to say. There is no provision for any checks or balances if a woman is being coerced to abortion, is being threatened, intimidated, faces violence as a result of not going through an abortion. There is no checks and balances for that. And this bill actually will permit abortion right up to full term with two consenting doctors. There's no requirement for that woman to have pre-termination counselling with a psychologist or anyone of that nature. And I think if that was understood by a wider community, that this is an abortion bill to permit abortion up to full term, I think many of our community would be alarmed and very, very concerned. That's the New South Wales Liberal Tanya Davies expressing her opposition to the what is expected to be the imminent uh, decriminalisation of abortion in the state of New South Wales. If you're wondering, if you're scratching your head a bit about why abortion was already a criminal offence, basically... The law had previously said that whosoever unlawfully administers an abortion shall be liable to imprisonment for 10 years. But the unlawfully word enabled uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions to basically say, well, we don't know what is unlawful and what isn't. So uh, it's all essentially lawful and there have been no prosecutions. So it's not as if we were a handmaid's tale state prior to this, but it's just bringing the law into line with whatever is ordinarily taking place. Peter Singer, would it be a problem to allow abortion on demand for fetuses that are are almost at the point of being born? I think there is a bit of a problem about that. I am concerned about abortions after the 
moment at which it's reasonable to believe that the fetus is capable of feeling pain. We can debate exactly when that is, but uh, I would expect it's it's certainly, say, by seven months uh, of gestation, I would think it's pretty clear that the fetus is likely to be capable of feeling pain. Um, how much earlier, I, I don't really know. So, yeah, if we're talking about abortions carried out as late as that, then I think there needs to be a very clear justification for them. I wouldn't say that they can be done, you know, for any reason at all. But if you, you know, wanted to draw a line, I would certainly say you would you would need to give some serious reasons for the abortion after the point at which the fetus is likely to be capable of feeling pain. Margot, what about the other end of the fetus's life immediately after insemination? Should a five-day-old blastocyst be able to be killed? Well, I think it's a personal ethical decision whether you agree with that or not. And if you want, you know, full respect for human life, you'd say no, that you shouldn't. But Uh, when you say it's a personal ethical decision, that means it should be legal? I think it should be left to the woman to decide, yes. But my position is that after 12 weeks of pregnancy, I think there should be law restricting abortion. It strikes me, Margot, that in the not-too-distant future, or maybe it'll be distant, the stage at which the embryo is viable is going to get earlier and earlier, obviously. I mean, I have some friends who had kids at right on 22 yep. weeks and they're doing fine now. Yep. Uh, that is going to come down and down and down until eventually it's conceivable that you could have a fertilised egg and it could be grown in a lab and well, brought to... Well, they've already done that with lambs. Right. And so so doesn't, doesn't that mean that your argument is logically, logically going to lead to the banning of all abortion? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, but, it, I mean, just on the grounds that you just gave me, that if the, if the fetus oh, is, is viable, If right, you could evacuate, yeah, yeah. yeah you could evacuate. Yeah, I mean, would, if you could evacuate from the well, moment of, of conception. No, it wouldn't lead to the banning of all abortion. It would lead to the deliberate killing of the fetus when that wasn't essential. To, in order to carry out the abortion. So abortion becomes evacuation of the uterus, but not necessarily the right to kill the fetus. Is what I'm saying is at, at the point at which technology is good enough that you can evacuate the uterus yeah. at the first day of pregnancy yeah, yeah. and then spend nine months yeah. with the embryo growing in a lab, yep. you would effectively abortion would be illegal because you would have to end up with the kid. That's your position? Well, well, I think Margaret's position is, is abortion would become evacuation. Exactly, fetus, Peter, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes, but abortion in the common meaning of the word, which is that you're not going to have a, a, a human being come yeah. out of this, would no longer be the case. Well, I mean, we face a similar problem with all the millions of stored embryos that we've got in our countries. Mm. I mean, what do we, what is our obligations in those respects? You know, it's funny you say that because my kids were born through IVF and so I still have embryos in a freezer in California yeah. And I pay every year for them not to get flushed down the toilet. Yeah. And I don't know why, because I'm not. I don't want them. I'm not. I'm not going to have another kid. That's what but a lot of people some, do. But there's just some. There's just some weird little part of me that goes, oh, let's just. We'll just pay pay for them for another year. Keep them. Keep them going. Let's just check in with uh, the people: Jonathan in Ballarat, Karen in Perth, and Mara in Sydney. How do you feel about a, a woman's right, Mara, to terminate a pregnancy? Just personally, for me, I believe that. If, if a woman is pregnant and after a certain amount of time, I, I do think that the embryo does get to a point where it can feel pain and it is actually classified as a human life. And personally, I don't agree with having an abortion so late towards the pregnancy. I'm just kind of hoping that the woman you know, would be able to actually make that decision much earlier to actually avoid being placed in that situation. Karen in Perth, jump in. I think that if the fetus is viable, um, you know, has a chance of surviving outside the uterus and without any brain damage or serious health problems, um, I don't think that uh, abortion past that point should be legal other than if there are some serious problems to the woman's uh, health if she's going to die if she continues with the pregnancy or if, yeah, there there might be some other exceptional circumstances. Mm. Jonathan in Ballarat. I'm very unresolved on on this, uh, I must say. No problems where there is questions of risk to the mother's life. A religious person might see, well, once conceived, you have a human entity, a human spirit, I looked up, for example, what other 
cultures, particularly traditional cultures, believe about abortion and euthanasia. On the question of abortion, they almost universally say it is wrong and there are sanctions for it, but they all give allowances for where there are circumstances like danger, danger of mother's life. Mm. Um, some of them, the Buddhists talk about the consequence being karma. On ABC RN, on air and online, this is The People Versus with me, Josh Sepps. This week, the people are wrestling with the ethics of death, meaning euthanasia, voluntary assisted dying laws, abortion. Uh, it'd be remiss of me, Peter Singer, to wrap this up without alluding to non-human animals and their rights. Just give us a kind of a, a sketch of your view about how all of these moral questions apply to humans and if and how they apply to non-humans. Well, to me, as uh, we've been saying, the, the crucial factor is do you have a being uh, who is conscious, capable of feeling pain? Um, and if you do, then you certainly have a being whose interests need to be considered. And to me, the gravest wrong we do to non-human animals is that we don't take their interests seriously, um, and in particular, their interest in not suffering. And so although we've been talking about uh, death and the wrongness of killing, I think the uh, vast amount of suffering that we are inflicting all the time on hundreds of millions of animals locked away in sheds in, in factory farms is uh, a worse thing than the fact that we end up killing them. Because after all, you could say, well, we're producing them, so we kill them. Um, they wouldn't have any life otherwise. But it's the fact that their life, when they have it, is a miserable one, is below the minimal quality for a, for a decent life and that they're treated simply as things and, and in the case of, say, chickens, as things that are so cheap that you don't care about the individual well-being at all. I think those are the, the greatest wrongs that we're doing to, to non-human animals and it's, it's wrong for us to draw ethical boundaries at the limits of our own species. And I'm pleased to say that over the 45 years that I've been thinking and writing about this issue, there has been some progress and I think we're readier now to acknowledge that ethical ethics does apply to our treatment of non-human animals. Margot, I assume that you'll agree that we should have some kind of ethical consideration towards the way that we treat animals. So we don't, oh, we don't need I... to to state that. But I but I just want to push push on the, the a potential point of disagreement, which is that should there be special moral consideration given to members of our species over others if all other variables are yeah. equal? Well, I totally agree with Peter about you know the appalling treatment of animals, and I'm I think it's heartbreaking. First of all, to think that we can do that and heartbreaking about how the animals are treated, but I don't agree with Peter that there's no moral distinction between being human and being non-human animal. And I think that humans, human life deserves special respect, but all life deserves respect. And I personally believe that unless we come to a greater respect for all life, we won't be able to maintain respect for human life. Peter Singer, I'll give you the final word here. Why is, is, why is Margot's latter conception of respect for human life unsound? Well, because the person who is in a, in a coma or is not vegetative state, is not ever going to be conscious, is not really a needy person. They may have biological needs in the, sense, the same sense that a plant needs to be watered, but they don't have needs in the sense of having wants or desires or needing something to avoid suffering. At that point, I think the fact that they're a member of the species Homo sapien is not itself uh, a morally crucial factor. And it's outweighed by the ability of non-human animals to actually experience life and enjoy life or conversely to suffer that becomes more important than whether they're a member of the species Homo sapien or a member of some other species. A very big thank you to you, Peter Singer, the IRW DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University. Peter's upcoming book is, uh, is an updated 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Save about global poverty and what you can do about it. Uh, it'll be published by The Life You Can Save, which is a charity that developed as a result of the book. Uh, this December, the e-book and the audio book will be available online free of charge. Thanks also to Margot Somerville, Professor of Bioethics at the University of Notre Dame and the founding director of the Emeritus Centre at McGill University in Montreal. Her latest book is Bird on an Ethics Wire, Battles about values in the culture wars. Thanks to our people, Karen in Perth, Jonathan in Ballarat, and Mara in Sydney. That's it for today. Follow me on social media at Josh Sepps. I'll catch you on the weekend on Weekend Breakfast on the television. And have a great week.